Good morning, everybody. Welcome once again to our time here at the Digital Cathedral. I want to welcome all of you from around the country, actually around the world, whether you're watching this in the morning in the United States, across the timeline, or in the next morning, which would be Monday morning in Australia. I want to welcome you and glad that you're with me this morning. What I want to do today is I want to look at another work that Jesus did in John chapter 9. If you've been with me for this last year, you know we're just progressively, slowly, uh, sporadically, kind of salt here and there, a little salt and pepper, are working our way through the book of John, hitting some highlights. We're not going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but we're hitting some highlights in the life of Jesus and things that I think are important and that we can pull truth out for where we're living today and what we are beginning to manifest as sons and daughters, exposing our culture to the kingdom. <clears throat> so let's look at John chapter 9. I want to read seven verses from a story that Jesus is told about Jesus and a happening in his life in John chapter 9. Now, somebody said, are all these stories literal? I, I don't know. They seem literal to me. If you want to make them a metaphor or a symbol of some kind, that's up to you. I tend to read, especially the book of John, I tend to read it as being pretty literal of things that actually happened in the life of Jesus. And then from the things that happened in the life of Jesus, I think we can draw truth out. We can see some, some parallels that may fit where we're living today. And that's what I'm attempting to do here in, in the book of John. The whole, the whole story of the book of John is union. It's oneness. Bringing you and I into that place of relationship with the Father through the Son and the Spirit where there's no separation, where we actually fully acclimate into our life the position that we have as a son and a daughter of God. So let's look at this, this, um, this passage from John chapter 9, and we're going to look, I'm going to give you four things this morning, four hindrances to seeing the kingdom of, of God. And Jesus made a startling in statement in John chapter 3 that we're going to read in just a minute, but let me read the backdrop. Let me read the story to get us all running in the same direction, okay? John chapter 9, verse 1 says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. I don't know how old this man was, but evidently he was a full-grown adult. As the story unwinds, uh, he's old enough to speak for himself. So I'm going to say this man's been blind 30 years, 35, 40 years. I don't know, but he's been blind all of his life from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Got to be somebody's fault, right? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Powerful, powerful response Jesus gave. Verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, because the night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am. Here's one of the I am's of Jesus. I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground, made, made clay with the, with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to the blind man, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which being translated means sent. So he sent him to sent. He sent him to the, to the pool. So he went his way, washed, and he came back seeing. Wow. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this the guy that was a beggar? And some said, No, this is he. Others says, No, he is like him. 
But the man said, I'm he, I'm the one. And later in the story, the guy says, I can't explain it all. All I know is I once was blind, but now I see, right? Powerful testimony. So in this, in this ninth chapter of John, there's a story of Jesus healing a man that had been blind all of his life. Didn't know what the light of day looked like. He had been totally blind. When you read this story on the surface, it appears to be about physical blindness and physical healing. But I want to dig down under it because I think there's some gems here that you and I can pull out, nuggets of truth that you and I can pull out and make them very applicable to the life that we're living today. Jesus makes it clear that this experience that is recorded in this ninth chapter of John was an ideal opportunity. And Jesus turns it this way. The thing I love about Jesus when he's telling parables or stories, stories about him, we always find within the story that Jesus is able to take it and turn it so that there's some absolute spiritual truth in it. So what Jesus does is he takes this and those that had eyes to see and ears to hear could see that the whole situation, because of the wording of Jesus and the actions of Jesus, is really about spiritual sight and spiritual healing. I think the first thing that's applicable, and this is not one of my four main points this morning, but I think just as a sidebar notice, I think it's fair to say that all of us were born spiritually blind. We, we had no spiritual vision. We had no spiritual acumen. Um, we needed revelation. We needed the spirit of truth to reveal to us. But we came into this world without a lot of spiritual perception. It had to be developed, had to be disclosed, had to be unveiled to us. So the, the, the importance of this story, as I see it breaking out, is not the importance or, or the headline of being visually impaired, but the headline of the story, as Jesus reveals, is being spiritually blind. So let me reveal four things that I see out of this story that I think are extremely important to us today. And I want you to listen to this entire teaching. I want you to listen to all of it from start to finish. If you have to leave, you know, put it on pause or whatever and come back and pick it up. Because I think there's, this is an important teaching. This is something I want you to get very much settled in your spirit. So the first thing we're talking about, hindrances to spiritual sight to see the kingdom, which is what this, what this, the underlying meaning of this story about Jesus in John chapter 9 really reveals is that the, the truth that Jesus is trying to get across are the hindrances that come to people that make them disabled, if I can say it that way, disabled and unable to see the kingdom. So the first thing is this. The story addresses the psychological barriers. The psychological barriers, your, your psyche, your soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Those, those barriers that the soul, the psyche, the psychology, the psychological barriers to seeing the kingdom. Now, before I start to get into that little bit, this first point, let me, let me just put some foundation down about seeing the kingdom. Seeing the kingdom is another term for awakening. When we talk about seeing the kingdom, we're talking about awakening. We're talking about enlightenment. We're talking about liberation. We're talking about freedom. Or if, if you have a church background, what we're really talking about is true salvation. Spiritual sight brings true salvation. And that word sozo means soundness, preservation, wholeness, completeness. When we see the kingdom, that's the entrance into wholeness. That's the entrance into, into soundness, into, into being everything that we were designed to be. 
Now, Jesus makes a startling statement in John chapter 3. And I, I bet you've probably never outside maybe of the digital cathedral. I might have hit on this a time or two before. But I've I bet you've never heard this point made in John chapter 3. Talking about spiritual sight right here. The psychological barriers. Uh, hindrances in your mind, your will, your emotions. Jesus said this. When he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, he said, most assuredly, this is Jesus speaking to Nick. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I've never heard any, any teaching on this, but I, I see something in that third verse that I think is really strong. The acid test of being born again is not whether you prayed the magic prayer and asked Jesus into your heart. It's not that whether you repented of all your sins. It's not if you were water baptized, not if you joined the church, went to the discipleship class. None of those things, Jesus said, are qualifiers to see the kingdom. Jesus said the acid test of being born again is your ability to see the kingdom. Now that tells me there's an awful lot of people running around that claim they're born again but, but they're seeing nothing. They know nothing of kingdom. They, they're totally ignorant of kingdom. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. There's spiritual blindness there. And I said at the, at the start of the teaching this morning that all of us are born in that condition. We're all born with a blank slate. Now, you may have some intuition or some natural inclinations. I don't know. I, I, I'm not that sharp to get into all that. But I know this. So we don't have much if any, spiritual perception. We have to have our eyes open. We have to have revelation. We have to see it. Not with these eyes. We have to see it from down in here. And there's a great story after the resurrection. <clears throat> let, let me just pick this up for you. In Luke chapter 24, just back up a little bit to, to the left. Luke chapter 24. Here's the importance of being able to see. And until we see, we really don't have a grasp on the kingdom. Let me, let me read verses 13 to 16, then I'm going to read verses 27 to 32. First verses 13 to 16. Now this is after the resurrection. And it says, And behold, two of the disciples went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So that's a pretty good walk. Seven miles, uh, probably an average person walks maybe three miles an hour, three and a half miles an hour. So it's probably a two or a little over two and a half hour walk, which is a pretty strong walk. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. The, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. I'm sure the town was abuzz about all this stuff that was going on with this carpenter guy. And what, what did all of it mean? And so it was, verse 15 says, that while they conversed together and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Isn't that interesting? Verse 16, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. That's a powerful, powerful thought. Jesus himself shows up in the flesh. They didn't recognize him. They were just talking. A lot of people can talk about, they were talking about Jesus. They were talking about all the happenings in the life of Jesus that, that everybody was, was echoing throughout the city. But when Jesus shows up himself, they didn't know who he was. The need for revelation. Their eyes were blind. They couldn't see. There was, a, there was a, a psychological barrier. There was something that was holding them back that they weren't able to see it, and they wouldn't see it until Revelation hit. All right, so let's bring it down to verse 24. <clears throat> Same chapter, and let me pick it up. I'm sorry, verse 27. Verse 27. 
And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is starting to pull the veil down. He's starting, he's starting to see how blind these guys really are. Are you guys really blind? Can you see what, can you, I'm, I'm going to start with Moses and work myself, work forward through the scriptures and maybe you're going to see me. And they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. He would have been happy to talk to them more. Verse 29, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward the evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now, I'm reading between the lines, but I think they were intrigued with Jesus. I think there was something there about this guy. They didn't know who he was, but it fascinated him. Do you find some of that same fascination even in your life? You know some about Jesus. You've had revelation, but there's something about this guy. What That song, there's something about that name. There's something about when Jesus begins to unveil himself to you that you want more of it. I'm at a place, I want more. I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied. I'm, you know, I'm not all uptight about it. But there's a, there's a thirst that needs to be quenched when you start to get an idea of what's going on here. And so they asked Jesus, would you stay a little longer? Now, it, in, in verse 30, it says, And it came to pass, as he sat at the table with him, that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. This is symbolic of communion. This is probably communion. I mean, he took the bread, he broke it. Now here's what happened, verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they knew him. Term a, a, a word of, of intimacy. They began to see what they never saw before. Their eyes were open. They they he, he re, totally revealed himself. Now this is this is powerful. And he vanished from their sight. Wow. Wow. I'm I'm so tempted to run that down that rabbit trail. Jesus vanished from their sight. So the entrance to seeing the kingdom is, is not by a prayer of repentance. It's not by asking Jesus into your heart. It's not being baptized in water. It's none of these things. The, the entrance into seeing the kingdom is to be awakened by revelation to what lies within you. And that's, that's a work of the Spirit. You, you cannot. There are things I want to get revelation of, but I can, I can dig and I can search and I can look and I can study. But until the spirit of truth opens your eyes, you really don't see. So you can't, this is something you cannot force. You cannot force sight, spiritual sight. Spiritual sight, let me just lay it out, say it plainly. Spiritual sight is a key to the kingdom. We, we can live in the kingdom to the degree that we have revelation, to the degree that we have spiritual understanding, the degree we have sight, not from studying, uh, not from religious hoop jumping, from what the Spirit of Truth unveils to us. Now, Paul knew the importance of it, and so he prayed a prayer. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays a, a, a powerful prayer for these Ephesian Christians. You know something? I actually pray this over the people at the Digital Cathedral because I think this is the heart of the New Testament. This is the heart of the New Covenant prayer. This is the heart of Revelation right here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Here's what Paul's 17. Ephesians 1.17, here's what Paul's praying for the, the believers at Ephesus. He said, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The more knowledge you have of him, the more revelation you're going to get. The more knowledge you have of him, the more wisdom you can live in. See, 
in the knowledge of him. Now, how do we gain that knowledge? Again, it has to come by spirit. But there are some aids like meditation, pondering the things of the spirit, cutting off uh, uh, things that would try to rob you of spiritual sight. I think there are things that aid us to gain an understanding or a knowledge of him. And that's not just an intellectual knowledge. There's a lot of people who have an intellectual knowledge, but no intimacy. When we enter into that place of intimacy, then all of a sudden revelation and wisdom begin to open up to us. Verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. That the eyes of your understanding, the eyes of your, your mind, the eyes, your inner eye, your inner eyes, that they would be, watch, enlightened. That means so that you can see, not naturally, so you can see by spirit, and that you may know. What is the hope of his calling the riches of his glory and his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? So we see the correlation, verse 19, that his mighty power works within us. So Paul said, I, I, I pray that the exceeding greatness of his power towards you, believers, would be revealed and it would be to the measure according to the working of his mighty power. That's, that's very powerful. Now there are a lot of people, a lot of religious people that have, that have gone through religious activities all of their life and they still won't see it. They still don't get it. They're still, they're still blind when it comes to kingdom things from birth. They've been blind since birth. No sight. They, they just have no understanding. So Jesus addresses addresses this issue of not understanding, of not seeing. In, in John chapter 9, let's go back to John and let's, let's kind of walk through this a little bit. John chapter 9 in verse 2, the disciples ask that famous question, uh, this guy's blind. There's, there has to be a reason for it. So the disciples asked in John chapter 9 verse, uh, verse 2, the disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents said he was born blind. Somebody has, somebody has to be the problem here. The disciples asked Jesus, who sinned? Did that man sin? How could, if he was um, born blind, he certainly couldn't have sinned before he was born, unless you come back to that old thing, you got an endemic nature, and when you pop out of your mama's, out of your mama's belly that you're, you're depraved, you're lost, you're undone, that's nonsense. So the, what, what I want you to hear is the guilt in that. It's a psychological thing. There's, there's an automatic guilt that is placed on people when something's not right. Someone has to be the blame for the situation. Somebody, we need to scapegoat. We got to be able to explain this. I mean, Jesus, come on now. We're traveling with you. You're, you're doing signs and wonders. We, we got to have a reason. For, we got to have an excuse for this. We, ha we have to have a way that we can get out of this when people ask. There's so much blame in Christianity. There's so much, there's so much guilt over situations. I, I've heard Christianity called a guilt management system. And here's what, here's what happens. All of us went through this in a church. There's a lot of guilt placed on us. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of shame. A lot of shame and guilt placed on us. And then we try to teach people how to deal with it. Right? How to get rid of it, how to manage it, uh, try to rid, rid, ridding ourselves of sin consciousness. 
You know, you know what sin consciousness is. It's, it's where you feel like you failed, like where you've messed up. And so you feel bad about it. You feel like, man, if only I made different decisions, different choices, uh, I, I totally missed the mark. Sin, I missed the mark. Harmatia, I, I totally am off the scale on this. And so the church comes in and the church highlights that. In fact, many pastors dig and probe around in people's lives until they hit that nerve of, of what's happened that makes you feel guilty. Then we want to come with a Band-Aid to try to make them feel better. I mean, certainly what, what we've done is consequences because of our failures. We feel we got to offload that some way. We have to get rid of that blame. We have to get rid of that guilt. We have to get rid of that shame. Religion demands perfection. Now, I know that the, 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 the Baptists say that we sin every day in word, thought, and deed, but they pile the guilt and the condemnation on because of that. Now, over the Armenians, on the other hand, say if you've sinned, if you've sinned, man, and Jesus comes back or the rapture takes place, you're going to hell. I don't care how good a life you lived. I don't care how righteous you were. I don't care what, what, what your standing in life was. If there's any unconfessed sin in your life, and so then the pastor starts saying, you know what? If you've spoken evil against your brother, if you cheated on your income, we just pry around until we find things that can make somebody feel tons of shame. Now, because, because this, this coat of perfection has been placed on us, we don't want to appear anything other than perfect. We want to appear as though we are perfect. And, and so the, the psychological thing when we feel guilt is to, is to blame shift it. It's to put it on somebody else. Who sinned? This, this, did this guy sin or did his parents sin? We, we blame shift to free ourselves of the guilt and the condemnation. We blame the devil. We blame society. We blame our parents. We blame the situation we were born in. We say, somebody abused me as a child. All that may be true. All that may be true. I, I, I'm willing to say that's, that could be true. But to gain spiritual sight, we have to be free of those things. We've got to off, offload them, not by blame shifting. We've got to understand that from the Father's perspective, He sees none of those things that the church has tried to make us feel guilty for, tried to condemn us for. Let, let me read a quick story. Where's my Bible? There it is. Let me read a quick story from um, Judges chapter 6. And I, this illustrates, I think, really, really well. Judges chapter 6 and verse 11. This is about Gideon. If you've been in church any time, you know the story, but I think it really points out the guilt and the shame that we're burdened down with and then how we try to, how, how we try to offload it to get ourselves out of, out of any guilt and, and condemnation. But we still carry it inside. That's sin consciousness. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abrazite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. The Midianites were in control. They, they were in power. And so here's, here's Gideon back there threshing wheat in a winepress. That is not the right instrument. This is a hard job. And he's, he's back behind the barn. He's back behind the garage. And he's, he's trying to eke out some food for his family, right? And he doesn't want them to find out. Now, just think, he's feeling bad about this. He's feeling a load of maybe uh, guilt because if the Midianites catch him, there's hell to pay. And the angel of the Lord appeared, verse 12, to him and said, 
The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. That's his identity. That's, that's who the angel said you are. So he, rather than perking up and saying, I guess I am a mighty man of valor. I mean, God says I am, I must be. Instead, he kind of offloads it. And he said, and Gideon said to the angel, Oh my Lord, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why is all this happening to us? You ever ask yourself that? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. This whole thing is God's fault. God, did, God wasn't there. God wasn't meeting the need. God let all this slip in. The Lord turned to him and said, go in, go in might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Wow, this is a complete turnaround in the life of Gideon. So he said, verse 15, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest. Now he's showing shame here. He's showing guilt. My, 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 my family's the weakest. And, and he said, not only that, I'm the lowest in the family. And, and verse 16, the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So here's this guy. I want you to get a visual picture of this. Here's this guy out grinding wheat in a wine press. He's really working. He's toiling at it. This angel shows up and said, hey, mighty man of valor. The guy says, who me? Are you kidding me? I, I, I'm feeling guilty for what I'm back here doing. Now, you know what, you know what guilt is? Uh, Lila did a great job on the Don Keithley Ministries page. She, she laid out a scenario of, of guilt and shame. Let me just, this is how she phrased it. I thought it was really good. She said, guilt is, is feeling the feelings you have when you've done something wrong. Guilt is something we've done. Something we've done. Shame, on the other hand, is when you feel incomplete, like something wrong with me. I'm missing a part. So, so guilt comes over activity, and shame is when I, when I store this up, and all of a sudden I feel like, man, I'm not worthy. Worthiness, worthiness is the cousin of guilt and shame. No, no, no question about it. They breed unworthiness. And that's where Gideon was. Gideon was feeling very unworthy. He, his family was the least, and he was the least of the, of the family. So this guy is, is neck deep. Number two, guilt and shame are huge obstacles, obstacles to spiritual sight. All right, number one, we talked about some psychological barriers, things that come up in our, our mind, our psyche, our emotions. And now we're coming to where guilt and shame are, are huge obstacles to spiritual sight not seeing or entering the good things of the kingdom, right? Because of guilt and shame. Guilt makes us feel like we're unworthy. Shame makes us feel like we're unworthy. One over things we've done and the other over something that's intrinsically wrong with us. And the shame, I think many times, is fed by the guilt. When guilt piles up, all of a sudden we get this feeling that I'm not good enough. I'm never gonna to amount to anything. So Jesus, back to, back to John chapter nine, Jesus undermined any guilt on the part of the man or his parents. And he says in verse three, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Oh, and that word revealed means to see what you didn't see. So we're gonna get some spiritual sight out of this. There's gonna come some illumination out of this. He said the man didn't sin, his parents didn't sin, but he said, I'm gonna tell you something. 
you're going to see something out of this that's going to be magnifying to God, that's going to bring glory to the, to the name of God because you're going to see this from a perspective, you're going to see this from an angle that you never saw it before. What appears to be something that's not good is going to turn out good. So Jesus, Jesus said it wasn't their fault that he can't see. And really, uh, let me say something here. It's not our fault that we can't see more than we see. I've said it two or three times this morning, but I want to say it again. The only way we can see is if it's revealed to us. The only way we can see is if it's disclosed. So Jesus brings this story into the now of not what his, his, this man did. It's not what his parents have done. He said it's so that the works of God can be revealed. Stop the bus. Stop the bus. Let me bring this into life. When you're in that kind of situation where something has been out of your control, here's what I have found we need to do. I have found that we need to step back and to see God in everything that happens. Jesus was saying, this is not a good situation. It wasn't the man's fault, it wasn't his parents' fault, but I'm gonna tell you something, something good is gonna come out of this. I see such a lesson in that, man. I, I've, I, I hope I've, I'm learning. <laughs> that whatever transpires, I see, I see the hand of God in it. Joseph saw the hand of God in everything he did from, this, from being sold by his brothers into slavery to Potiphar's wife accusing him falsely to being sent to prison. And he came out of that. And when his brothers came to him because there was a famine in the land, here's what Joseph said. The things that you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, when we look back on things, when we look back on situations, sometimes we can see the hand of God in it much more clearly than we can when we're in the middle of it. When you're in the middle of it, the best thing that you can do is just hold tight, just hold firm. Don't be, don't shift, don't, don't feel like you have to come up with some plan or you have to blame shift or offload any shame or guilt that would try to load itself on you. Keep that stuff off of you. You're not guilty, you're not full of shame for anything. So I want you to see that things that happen, we need to look for the working of God in it. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, Paul learned this. I mean, Paul, time after time, reveals exactly that. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, And we know that all things work together for good. All things work together for good to those that love God. Do you love God this morning? I know you do. You wouldn't be here to Digital Cathedral. To those that love God, all things work together for good. To those who are the called according to his purpose. That's the promise. The promise that God gives to you is that everything in life will work to the good at the end of the day. Now here's the plan. How's he going to do it? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is verse 29. He, those he foreknew, which were all of us. He foreknew every person. Nobody slid through the cracks without the Father recognizing this guy's heading into the plan. I'm sending him there. He predestined everyone that he foreknew. What did he predestine us to? To be conformed to the image of his Son. Well, how, how did the Son grow in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man? He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. The reason we suffer is because we don't recognize what God is doing in it. Do you think that the Father sent the son through some tough situations just, just to be mean 
just to be cruel? Or was it part of the total makeup of the son as he comes into that place of rulership that the father designed for him from the very beginning? Moreover, whom he predestined, those he called, and those that he called, he justified, and those that he justified, he also glorified. That word glorified means that you're, you're, you're emanating his presence. The end game is to emanate his presence, is to fill the earth with the glory of God. How does he do that? He lets you know that he foreknew you, he predestined you, he also called you, he justified you, and he glorified you. How did he do it? He, the process, the promise is that everything is going to work together for good to those that love God. And I know this is a hard word for some of you. Some of you have a slant that everything in life is going to be rosy. Now that I'm into grace and in finished work, everything's hunky-dory, everything's going to go smooth. I got news for you. It's not going to be like that. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of cheer, I've overcome the world. Jesus said, whoever hears my sayings and does them, I'll liken him to a man that builds his house on a rock. Now the storms come, the winds blow, the rains, the rains descend, but the house is, is strong. It's, it's not shaken. It doesn't collapse. I, I know you know these verses, but Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 and 2. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 and 2. I, 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 you know, when I read the Bible, sometimes I go, man, these people know all these verses. I know, but we need to plug them in because they give witness. They give credibility to what we're, we're trying to say. There's therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation to this man that was blind, to him or his family, right? There's no condemnation, no guilt, no shame in your life whatsoever. Don't, don't take that on. No matter what, don't take guilt and condemnation on to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. Now this is a big clue, who, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You walk from that inner inner voice, you walk out of that inner perspective, out of that those what your inner eyes are showing you. And verse two says, for the law of the spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. This is, this is what's happening. We are being perpetually freed from that law of sin and death. The spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus automatically brings an end to the law of spirit and death. Death. It, that death should not be in our vocabulary in any way, shape, or form. I'm just going to let that one sit there. So Jesus said the solution to this problem, back to John chapter 9, John chapter 9, here's how Jesus said we're going to solve this problem, and here's how he still solves it today. The blindness, the darkness that we have dwelt in, maybe just in part. There's still some places that I see through a glass very dimly, and I, you know, it's almost like my vision is distorted. I want to see it sharp. So Jesus said, all right, here's how, here's how we're going to start to work this. Here's how we're going to begin to clear this up. John chapter 9 and verse 5. Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So what, what does light do to darkness? What does light do to blindness? It enables you to see. Jesus said one chapter before in John chapter 8 and verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. That means there can be no darkness in his presence. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. No death, no condemnation, no guilt, no shame, 
the Zoe, the life of God. When we don't need to walk in darkness. We have the light within us. Now this is this is some amazing stuff. Jesus, Jesus is I amness. He declares, I am the light of the world. It, it's all about his nature. His nature is light. It's about his identity. It's, it, 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 it's about who he is at the very core. He is light, right? Then on the Sermon on the Mount, he makes, he makes an astounding statement. In, in Matthew chapter 5, he, he establishes where we're at with him, and there should be no darkness, no blindness, no spiritual blindness. John chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. You are a city that is set on a hill, and you cannot be hidden. Man, you're going to shine. They can't see it. Verse 15, nor do they put a light or a lamp under a basket, but on a lampstand it gives light to all that are in the house. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And what I like about this is that Jesus, for Jesus in that 8th chapter of John says, I am the light of the world. Now he got done explaining in Matthew chapter 5 that we are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. That, so the nature of Jesus now becomes our nature. We don't have any, there's no darkness in us. There's no darkness in him. You, you may demonstrate some darkness because you don't know who you are. Your identity's messed up. You are the light of the world. And he's not setting you under a lampstand. He's setting you on a, on a hill. He's setting you high up so that your light can emanate, so people can see that light. See, nobody ever taught us that the light Jesus has is the same light that we have. See, we've continually put Jesus in a different category, in a, in a different place. We, we, in our minds, we've said the Father loves him. He's special to the Father. Yes, he is the the. the, the First born among many brothers. He's the only begotten son of God. That's his position. That'll never be shaken. But when it comes to nature, when it comes to identity, Jesus came to show us who we are. Now, this light that Jesus has, let me just take the time. John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 4. If I'm going too fast for you, you're going to have to come back and listen to it again. John, what Jesus said, it or John said, in Jesus was life. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. That's what he says in verse 4. So the, the, the Jesus light is the shining of his very life. Now he says in verse 9, this was the true light which gives light to every man who comes into the world. In verse 4, John says light and life, they're synonymous terms. So when I read verse 9, I'm going I'm to put life in there instead of light because I think it, 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 show, it throws some light on what John was trying to get across. This was the true life. Jesus was the true life which gives life to every man that comes into the world. Never heard that taught in church, that every man that comes into the world has a, a Jesus light or synonymous a Jesus life, a, a, the life of Jesus within him. I don't see how you can read John chapter 1, verse 4 and 9 without seeing that light and life are interchangeable and that we have the light of life. We have the Jesus life that is within us. Since his light is his life, 
When we substitute very simply the word life for the light, we can see that all men that come into the world have the Jesus light or the life within them. So what do we need to do? We need to flip the switch for people. They're wired already. They have a G they're wired for the light of Jesus. Recognizing that his nature was light and life and that it is our light and our life, that's the cure for spiritual blindness. When the light emanates from you, darkness cannot surround you. Blindness cannot surround you. Let's, let's just, for the sake of the teaching this morning, let's just call that darkness blindness because when you are totally blind, you're living in a world of darkness. When that, when that light begins to emanate from you, that life, darkness cannot stand in its presence. That light shines on darkness. That light shines on shame. That light shines on guilt. That light shines on condemnation. And once it's realized and we see it for what it is, then the blindness lifts. One of the reasons that we cannot see the kingdom is because of shame and guilt. And we have to get rid of that. We have to, that's not our portion. That's not, that's not our part. All right, number three. The next issue of spiritual blindness in the kingdom is spiritual practices. What I mean by spiritual practices, there are things that crowd in that we feel that we have to do. And Jesus addresses that. In fact, he lets the man do. I, I'm not sure why, but it's so that the glory of God can be seen. That's what Jesus tells us is going to come out of this. But spiritual practices are obstacles to sight. We just got this built in something, man, as human beings especially, you know, Texans, other, maybe the other states too, I don't know, other countries. But there's just something about us that makes us feel like we, we got to do something. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You got to do something. And if we're going to see like Jesus sees, then there's got to be something we have to do. So we latch on to verses like James chapter 2. Right? James chapter 2. Look at this. I, I've heard this talked about a lot. James chapter 2 and verse 14. This just enforces the fact we got to do something. What does it profit, my, my brother, if, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? That faith cannot save him, can it? Question. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are in need for the body, what does it profit? There's absolutely no profit in it. 17. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. Verse 20, one more verse. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So there it is. There it is. James says, we got to do something. I've tried to give you a good hermeneutic here at the Digital Cathedral, that when you read a scripture, you need to understand who it was written to. Who was the book of James written to? Let me just see, that, that right there brought some guilt to somebody because he said, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing right. I've seen needs and I didn't take care of it. All right, who, who was James writing to? James opens up his, his book by saying, James, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Who is James writing to? He's writing to the 12 Jewish tribes. It was not written to you. 
It was not written to you. Have, have you learned that I've tried, I've, I've tried to teach that every verse in the Bible, here's, here's where we trip up and religion has enforced it. We try to make every verse in the book applicable to us today. We take every verse out, like faith without works is dead, therefore I gotta work to get my faith. It's not, it's not a gift, it's not something I, I, I can just lay hold of. I, got, I gotta have some work that corresponds to it. James was very, very much a mixture of law and grace. Peter, James, and John were Jews, and they were sent to, to the Jews. The entire message of Peter, James, and John was to help Jews cross over from the law to grace. Paul was sent to Gentiles. It's an entirely different audience. You can pick up some faith and works. You can pick up some mixture in, in the writings of Peter, James, and John that are not there in the writings of Paul. It's because of different audiences. In fact, James was working out of some of this himself. Let me even go further. Paul was working out of some of it himself. Paul grew spiritually. And you, the, the later letters that Paul wrote have, a, have an entirely different slant sometimes than the first letters that he wrote. You know, he was coming out. These guys were coming out of a religious system. And as a result, there have, there have been people that are developing in feeling like they have to do something. Some people trust in doing. Their trust is in their ability to do. So in the story, Jesus accommodates that. He spits on the ground, makes some mud, and he's teaching a spiritual lesson here. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it to a point here in a minute. He's teaching a spiritual lesson. He puts the, puts the uh, mixture on the guy's eyes. He says, now go wash yourself, go do something. And when he did, he washed and he, he came back and he could see. Let me take a deep breath and a full pause right here. There's nothing wrong with doing. If you prayed the magic prayer, that's okay. It's not, no condemnation. I don't believe you have to pray the magic prayer. I believe you need to awaken. I believe you need to, to have your eyes open to who you've always been, who you are, and what God designed you to be. If you were baptized in water, that's fine. That's okay. If you don't drink, cuss or chew, or run with folks that do, that's fine, that's okay. But none of those things have anything to do with your, with your standing before God, right? They do not make you righteous. Jesus performed a lot of miracles without the theatrics of John chapter 9. There was no magic mud. There was no sacred spit. There was no holy water that he went to wash in. He asked the man to do this. Oftentimes, Jesus did ask people to do something. And I think it comes back to this idea that they were not ready for righteousness apart from works. The, he was bringing a people. Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's helping the Jews. He's, he's moving the Jews. So when Jesus was crucified, uh, resurrected, and ascended, he had given Paul a mission to go straight to the Gentiles. Jesus is trying to show them it's about the light of the world invading darkness and what, however he had to do it so that it worked, he was willing to do. Even if it meant somebody had to do something to satisfy themselves to make it work. I hope you at the Digital Cathedral are past that point when you feel like you have to do something to make it work. Listen, it's not about beliefs. It's not about morality. It's about spiritual 
identity. It's about knowing who you are. So this, this story in John chapter 9 moves from the story of the healing and now it moves over to the identity of Jesus and them trying to find out who in heck this guy was. The whole rest of the chapter is about questioning Jesus. It's about the discovery of who Jesus was because of what he did. Right? The man became a follower of Jesus, no question about it. This guy that could see, he didn't know nothing about Jesus once he was blind, but now he can see. But religion couldn't buy into it. Religion wasn't ready to, to handle this. Here's how religion deals with questions. Here's how religion deals with the sin. And some of you have been on the receiving end of this, unfortunately, and I'm sorry for that. Release them, let them go. Don't, don't get bound up in it. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And let's go down, let's go down to verse 26. Here's how religion deals with, with this kind of situation. That they don't know it's beyond them. Spiritual light, enlightenment, awakening, eyes of our understanding coming open. Then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? How did, what was the trick? He answered said, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we're Moses' disciples, bless God. We know that God spoke to Moses as for his fellows. We don't know who he is or where he's from. The man answered and said to them, why this is a marvelous thing. Why, do, why, why is it you want to know where he's from? Why is it you got to get more idea on this? Verse 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if any man is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Verse 32. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. 33. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sin. <laughs> and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Okay, man, that, that, could be, that could have been written today, couldn't it? But here's a guy who's got his sight, rather than rejoicing with him, saying this is a wonderful thing. Thank God for everything that's happened. They said, we can't deal with this. This, this isn't right. And so... The guy, the guy was just responding to all of their accusations. And finally, they, couldn't, they just cast him out. Anybody here ever been thrown out of a church because of the revelation, the insight that you have, and it just does not fit with, with the Moses law or the law of the church, the established doctrine? All right, that takes us to number four. Pride and arrogance are huge barriers in seeing the kingdom. Pride and arrogance, guilt and shame psychological uh, uh, difficulties. All those things pile up. And so they make us, the kingdom is in front of us. It's just hard to see. Being closed-minded. These the, the, the Pharisees were closed-minded, man. It was one way. They thought they had the corner on truth. They thought they had the favor of God. Closed-mindedness cuts across 40,000 denominations, all who say, we believe the Bible, yet no two agree and no, no two believe exactly the same thing. Do you know why sons are not manifesting today? You know why the kingdom is not more visible? It's because of the pride and the arrogance of religion. The refusal to say, maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe there's something my eyes need to be open to. And like the Pharisees, we say, we see, we understand what Jesus was doing. We have great spiritual insight when really we don't. 
In fact, Jesus said in the 39th and 40, 41st verse, and I got to wrap this up. He said, I came to open people's eyes to this. He said, and those of you that think you're already seeing, he said, you're in blindness. You're in blindness. The only sight that really counts is the sight that the spirit of truth, the spirit of revelation, understanding and the knowledge of him enlightens and opens us to. So where does that leave us? We can't, we can't, we can't be arrogant. We can't be prideful. We, we are free of shame and guilt. All of those things are like little cords that are attached to us that the spirit of truth is just snipping off and like a hot air balloon. When you get all the ropes snipped off, that balloon ascends. We're ascending because the cords are being snipped. The cords are going. So where does this leave us? Leaves us with grace, a radical hyper grace, a grace without pump, push, pull, a grace without arrogance, a grace without pride, a grace without shame, a grace without guilt. Guilt and shame are blinders. They're poison. They're poison. Pride and arrogance are, are poison to us. We can't have any of that. It's about spiritual identity. It's about knowing who we are. And when you know who you are, you have no pride. You have no arrogance. You have no shame. You have no guilt. When we see, all right, I'm, I'm, I got to close. When we see who we are, <clears throat> we see who he is. And when we see who he is, we see who we are. We see that Jesus is the light of the world. And he has given us that ability to be the light of the world so that we will not walk in blindness. We won't walk in darkness. We'll walk in the fullness of the light. Jesus came into the world so that every man might see. And you know what? They will. They will. The one that declares the end from the beginning has declared that at the end of the day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We will all see. We're just coming in at different times. All right, this week, when you walk out, you leave the digital cathedral, you walk out into your job or out into the world of the mall, wherever you're going this next week, I want you to understand something. You are the light of the world. And every place you go, you're emanating a Jesus light and you're, you're, you're flowing with a Jesus life. And you can expect change where you go. You change the atmosphere wherever you go because of who you are. We're seeing more and more who we are, which opens our eyes to more and more of who he is. And the more we see who he is, it just, just keeps rolling. We see more and more of who we are. All right, God bless you. Hope you picked up some stuff today on this teaching from John chapter 9 on hindrances to, to seeing the kingdom. We're seeing it clearly. We're seeing it better than we've ever seen it, but there's so much more that we're going to uncover. God bless you. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you for your support, your prayers, for making this journey with me. I, I, I couldn't make it alone. I need all of you, and we all need one another. That's why the Digital Cathedral. See you Wednesday night at Secret Place, back next week, 10 a.m. Central for another teaching from the Digital Cathedral. God bless.